Well, good morning. My name is Weston Duke. If you have a Bible with you this morning, you can open it up to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. As Stephen said earlier, I am the, the campus minister at Middle Tennessee State University with Reformed University Fellowship, and, and I am one of the missionaries that your church supports, and so anytime I'm here, I, I'd like to say thank you for your church's prayerful and financial support of our ministry. If you're ever interested in learning more about what RUF looks like on our campus, I'd be happy to talk to you more about that, get you on our email newsletter. Well, this morning, we are going to be reading a passage that's really about what we just sang about, loving Jesus. So if you would, turn your attention with me now to God's Word, looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he, that is Jesus, went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster alabaster flask of ointment, And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us. We thank you that you tell us stories about a real Jesus so that we can see our real selves in these stories. We pray that as as we come to your word this morning, that your spirit would be at work accomplishing that which you have purposed for us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So one of the podcasts that I have listened to off and on over the years is called This American Life. If you're not familiar with it, each episode is basically a series of human interest pieces on a particular theme. And recently, I was listening to the Father's Day episode, in which they tell a story of Sandra Lowe, who learned that a local grunge band had written a song about her father. Now, kids, can you imagine learning that 
a band had written a song about one of your parents. Well, Sandra Lowe was just as surprised as you probably would be because the depiction of her father in this song did not at all align with her own experience of her father. She grew up thinking that her dad was just, well, weird. (laughs) He was very strict and very miserly. He wouldn't allow his family to celebrate Christmas. They wouldn't go on any family vacations. He would take his kids to the beach every once in a while, but it was so that they could pick up aluminum cans in exchange for spare change. And he was also determined that all of his kids should go get PhDs in engineering lest they starve on the streets. But in this song by the local grunge band, Sandra's father, Mr. Lowe, was presented as, quote, a symbol of freedom in introspection, which both comforts the listener and poses profound spiritual challenge. So Sandra decided that she was going to interview the band that wrote this song. And to her surprise, she learned that the song was not, in fact, a joke. This band actually saw her father as this so profound spiritual figure. And she also learned that the band had actually written several songs about her father over the span of a decade. So she brought her father into this interview with the band. And during the interview, he started doing one of those eccentric things that kids normally just find annoying about their parents. He started singing a Chinese folk song, which he had personally translated into French. And as Sandra is listening to her father sing this French Chinese folk song, she looks over and she sees one of the band members crying. And when he finishes singing, she says, okay, why? Why why, why were you just crying? And the band member responded, that was beautiful. It was just this unhindered, true expression of something totally genuine. It gave me chills. And Sandra commented, it was surreal sitting in a room full of young people who are hanging on to my father's every word. He's like an odd little guru, and they his apostles. God knows he never got that from my sister or my brother or me. Now, you may be wondering, where is he going with this story? (laughs) Well, this story serves as a vivid example of how the same person can elicit very different responses from others. And I'm sure that you have observed this if you're in your own life, if not with one of your parents, then with someone else, someone that you may find very annoying, others have deep affection for, much to your consternation. This phenomenon also happens with the person of Jesus. And no matter where you are spiritually this morning, I want to suggest that you have experienced this as well. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, you may be a little confused or even cynical about why so many people around you make such a big deal of Jesus. Sure, he, he said some profound things and he lived a beautiful life, but to sing songs about him, to even construct your whole life around him, that seems a little excessive or maybe even fanatical. Or maybe you're here this morning and you have been a Christian for a long time. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, but you've noticed that your faith in Jesus just doesn't seem to be as vibrant as some of the Christians around you. Maybe your faith isn't as vibrant as in your former self. Or maybe you're here this morning and you do feel a deep, genuine love for Jesus, and you ache 
that your close friend or family member can't understand why. Why does this happen? Why do people respond to Jesus in such different ways? Well, in this passage this morning, we see this phenomenon play out. We see two people who respond to Jesus very differently. And we're going to take a a look at their responses this morning, and then we're going to see the reason for their respective responses. And then we'll discuss the relevance for us today. So those are going to be our three points this morning. The responses of these two people, the reason for their respective responses, and the relevance for us today. So first, let's look at their responses. The first person that we're introduced to in this story is a Pharisee. And in verse 40, we're told that his name is Simon. And he has invited Jesus over for a dinner party. And we're not explicitly told why he has made this invitation, but we can make some deductions. At this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus has gained some notoriety. He has been going around to local synagogues and teaching. Crowds of people have been gathering to him in the open air to hear his preaching. And just earlier in Luke 7, he has been proclaimed to be a great prophet because of the miracles he's been performing. So Simon likely wants to personally investigate Jesus for himself. But we know that Simon has offered this invitation with some suspicion. He internally comments in verse 39 that Jesus clearly can't be a prophet, which shows us that Simon has been skeptical of Jesus all along. But more than being skeptical, Simon has also been pretty cold and unfriendly towards Jesus. Jesus actually points this out in verses 44 through 46. He says that Simon hasn't been very welcoming to him. You see, during this time, a good host would have provided water for, for them, for, their, for his guests to wash their own feet. That's because there were no paved roads and everybody wore open-toed shoes back then. And so your feet got pretty dirty and when you entered someone's home, you wanted to wash your feet. A good host would have also offered a kiss on the cheek as a sign of welcome to their guests, similar to how we might hug one another today. And a good host also would have anointed the the head of his guests with olive oil to refresh their skin from the dry Palestinian heat. But Simon did none of those things for Jesus. So Simon's response to Jesus is suspicion and skepticism and coldness. And this is contrasted with the second person in our story. We're not actually told her name. She's simply identified by her reputation. Luke says that she is a woman of the city, which is likely an indirect way of saying that she was a prostitute. And like Simon, she has also heard about Jesus. Maybe she has heard Jesus open-air preaching firsthand, or maybe she's just heard about Jesus secondhand from a fellow sinner. But either way, When she hears that Jesus is going to be at a dinner party in Simon's house, she heads that way. Now, during this time, houses were not as closed off as they are now, and thus, dinner parties weren't closed events. People could actually come in and and watch the action from the outskirts. And so this woman goes into the house, and she stands behind Jesus while he is reclining at table. And when someone reclined at table, they they sat on a a cushion or a low couch, and they would rest on the table with their left hand, and they would eat with their right hand, and their feet would be out back behind them. 
So this woman goes and she stands right over Jesus' feet and she is so overcome with being in Jesus' presence that she begins to openly weep. And I just want you to consider how awkward this would have been. Imagine you are out with some friends at dinner and someone who is clearly not an upstanding member of society comes up behind one of your friends and just starts bawling. You would probably be thinking to yourself, uh, can we contain this situation? But this woman makes no efforts to contain herself. In fact, she does just the opposite. She then lets down her hair, which is something that a proper Jewish woman would not have done in public. And then she begins wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And she kisses Jesus' feet, and then she breaks open a bottle of perfume and uses that to anoint Jesus' feet. And Jesus contrasts this response with Simon's in verses 44 through 46. So he said, Simon didn't even provide water for Jesus to wash his own feet, but this woman provided the water of her tears. And she used her own hair as a towel to wash Jesus' feet. Now, because feet were so nasty during this time, washing feet was the job of the lowliest of servants. But this woman does it with joy, showing her humility before Jesus. And she kisses his feet, and she is kissing his feet, which again shows her humility, but she's kissing his feet, which shows her great love for Jesus. And Simon didn't even anoint Jesus' head with inexpensive olive oil, but this woman anointed Jesus' feet with very expensive perfume. This probably would have been the most expensive thing that she owned as a prostitute. And this shows her gratitude and her devotion to Jesus. So Simon's response to Jesus is skepticism, suspicion, coldness. But this woman's response to Jesus is humility, gratitude, devotion, and love. Why do these two people have such radically different responses to Jesus? Well, that brings us to our second point, which is the reason. And thankfully, Jesus helps us and helps Simon to understand what is going on in this situation. Look with me in verse 39. Now, just a little bit of context for this verse. In this culture, devout religious people would have avoided touching a sinner because that would have made them ritually defiled. And so when Simon sees that Jesus doesn't shoo away this sinful woman, he thinks to himself, okay, surely Jesus can't be a prophet because if he was, he would know that this woman who's touching him is a sinner, that she's defiling him. But then comes the irony of verse 40. Did you catch it? It says, Jesus answering said to him. Simon internally concludes that Jesus is not a prophet. And then Jesus reads and responds to his thoughts as only a prophet could do. And he tells Simon, I have something to say to you. Now at this point, I think I would get a little bit nervous, but we're not sure what Simon was expecting. And so he welcomes Jesus' personal address and Jesus proceeds to tell him this parable of a moneylender who has two debtors. And the one debtor owes 500 denarii which was almost two years worth of wages. So whatever is on your W-2, double that. And another debtor owes 50 denarii, which would have been two months worth of wages. 
So whatever your monthly pay stub is, double that. And neither one of these debtors can pay, and so the moneylender forgives both debts. And Jesus asks Simon, which debtor is going to love the moneylender more? And this seems like such an obvious answer that Simon sort of seems to think it's a trap. He says, well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, it's not a trick question. You got the right answer. And then he uses Simon's understanding of this parable to help illuminate the situation. He says, do you see this one? Do you see how she has responded to me? I'll tell you the reason why. Verse 47, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now, this shouldn't be interpreted to mean that the woman's love was the cause of her forgiveness. No, the point of Jesus' parable was just the opposite. The one who is forgiven much loves much. And to make his point clear and a little more pointed, Jesus then states it inversely. The one who is forgiven little loves little. So Jesus says that our response to him is determined by how much we need his forgiveness. Our response to Jesus is determined by how much we need his forgiveness. And this makes sense because Jesus didn't come primarily to be a teacher. He came primarily to be a savior. Christ came in the world to save sinners by purchasing their pardon with his blood. And Jesus himself said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you're not sick, then you're not going to be excited about a doctor who offers you healing. No, you would likely be a little suspicious of his offer. Well, in the same way, if you're not a sinner in need of forgiveness, then you're not going to love a Savior who offers you grace. But here, we should ask, Is Jesus implying that Simon the Pharisee actually needs less forgiveness than this sinful woman? Well, considering Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees elsewhere in the Gospels, I think it's reasonable to conclude that that's not what's happening here. I think it's better to understand this as a subtle confrontation of Simon's self-righteousness. Jesus is indirectly saying, Simon, you don't love me like this woman because you don't think you need as much forgiveness as this woman. Now, why would Simon think that about himself? Well, it's because Simon was a Pharisee, as we're told. And if you've been in church for a while, you likely have a negative connotation with that word. But to the Pharisees' credit, they cared a lot about following God's law. They cared so much about following God's law that they created all of these extra rules to make sure that they wouldn't even get close to breaking God's law. The problem is that they were so focused on doing the right thing that it blinded them to the fact that sin is more than just doing the wrong thing. Sin is more than just breaking the rules with our behavior. Sin is more than just outward immorality. Sin is a matter of what's in our hearts. Jesus teaches us this on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, it's not only murder that's a sin, it's hating someone in your heart. It's not only adultery that's a sin, it's lusting after someone who is not your spouse. 
And this makes sin a lot like an iceberg. Stay with me. You likely have seen one of those pictures or diagrams of an iceberg that show that the part of the iceberg that's visible above the surface of the water is only a small fraction of the total iceberg. No, there's actually way more iceberg beneath the surface. Well, in the same way, the sin that is visible in our lives is just the tip of the iceberg. Now, most of our sin dwells beneath the surface in our hearts. But Simon was only focused on what was visible above the surface. And this woman had a lot of iceberg showing, if you will. Her sin was very visible and very public, and so she and everyone else around her knew that she needed a lot of forgiveness. And thus, she responds to Jesus with gratitude and joy and love. But Simon, with all of his rule-keeping, had very little iceberg showing. He didn't think he needed much forgiveness, and consequently, he responds to Jesus with indifference and coldness. And so we can go back and amend our earlier statement. It's not, our response to Jesus is not actually determined by how much we need his forgiveness. Our response to him is determined by how much we think we need his forgiveness. Our response to Jesus is determined by how much we think we need his forgiveness. And that's the reason for the different responses of these two people. Okay, finally, let's talk about the relevance of this story for us today. And first, I want to discuss the relevance of this story for those of you here this morning who may be a little skeptical of Christianity. Maybe you're here this morning because someone in your family dragged you to church with them. Or maybe you're genuinely interested in this Jesus character, but you haven't quite made up your mind about him. I would be really curious to hear what you consider your greatest obstacle to believing in Christianity. Maybe it's the existence of suffering and evil in this world. Or maybe it's the Bible's teaching on sexuality and gender. Or maybe it's the apparent incompatibility of science and faith. Whatever those objections are, there are excellent resources out there for you to think through these things. I'm sure Richard would be sure to happy to uh, point you to some. But Jesus seems to be saying in this passage that those things aren't actually your biggest obstacle to accepting the claims of Christianity. No, Jesus seems to be saying that your biggest obstacle is that you don't truly believe that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness. Now, you might immediately be thinking, who does this guest preacher think he is? He doesn't know me. I mean, yes, I'm far from a perfect person, but like all things considered, I think I'm pretty good. And you may be. I'm not accusing you of being an immoral person. (laughs) You may be a very kind and generous and hardworking person. You may be a devoted parent or an obedient child. You may be well-respected by all of your peers. You may give of your time and your money. You may be the kind of person that I would love to have as my next-door neighbor. But remember what we said earlier, that most of the sin in our lives lies beneath the surface. And so we need to ask ourselves, what is it that motivates our morality? Why do we try to be a good person, however we define what that is? Sure, 
we want to do the right thing. We want to help other people. We want to contribute to the common good. But isn't it also true that you want to look good in front of other people? Isn't it also true that you want to feel good about yourself for being the certain kind of person? <laughs> Isn't it also true that you want to create a certain life for yourself? And aren't all of those motivations actually pretty selfish? You see, our efforts at being a good person can in reality be ways that we're living for ourselves. The author Harrison Scott Key tells a story about a time that this hit home for him. When he was about 12 years old, he walked by himself to a church near his home. And he, he went to Sunday school and he was sitting in there. And the Sunday school teacher brought in a blind boy named Willie. And at the end of the class, the Sunday school teacher asked if anyone would be willing to take Willie to the sanctuary for worship. And Key immediately volunteered because he said, I liked helping people, especially when others noticed me helping. And he was so busy noticing everyone else noticing him that what he didn't notice was the floor-mounted water fountain into which he walked Willie face first. And he writes that in that moment, something had ruptured, come unmoored deep inside me, the demon of pride let loose and made visible. Willie had broken his nose and I had fractured my enduring belief in the unsullied purity of my intentions. It would take me years to understand this, but the understanding began in that church hallway that a good person is a temporary and imaginary creature because the best of us are often the worst, full of proud and viperous snakes, believing ourselves to be God. In that last sentence, key names that when we live for ourselves, we are actually putting ourselves in the place of God. According to the pastor John Stott, that is the essence of sin. It is substituting ourselves for God. And when we start to think of sin this way, we realize that we are all great sinners in great need of forgiveness. You know what? It's okay to admit that because forgiveness is on offer. You know, when Jesus confronted Simon of his self-righteousness, he wasn't just confronting him. He was also offering him the same forgiveness that this woman had received. And that's on offer for all of us here this morning as well. Second, I want to discuss the relevance of this story for those of you who may be feeling weighed down by guilt and shame this morning. Maybe you feel like this sinful woman and your failures in life are on display for everyone to see. Or maybe you feel like you're living something of a double life. Your life looks bright and shiny on the outside, but you know that that's really just an act. Things are not well behind closed doors. Either way, you may be acutely feeling your need of forgiveness, but you aren't responding to Jesus like this woman. What's keeping you from going to him and experiencing the same joy that this woman had? Is it that you don't feel like you're good enough to call yourself a Christian? If so, then please forgive us Christians for giving the wrong impression because there's only one prerequisite to becoming a Christian, and that is knowing that you're not a very good person. Or do you think your sins are too many or too great to be forgiven? Well, look at this sinful woman. She was a prostitute, 
Jesus actually says in verse 47 that her sins are many. (laughs) But then he says in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. Or are you wondering, who is Jesus that he can make that declaration? And admittedly, it is sort of a presumptuous thing for Jesus to say. (laughs) This woman likely had never met Jesus before, and thus her sins ostensibly weren't against Jesus. That would be like if uh, me and Richard and Will Cody all went to get coffee one morning. I texted Will Cody last night to ask if I could use him in a sermon illustration. Uh, And, you know, we're we're talking about uh, upcoming season in college football, and, you know, both Will and I went to the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and so we're just talking about how the Vols are going to be, you know, way better than the Virginia Tech Hokies this season. And Richard just you know, uncharacteristically becomes unhinged and he throws his coffee in Will's face. And I look at, at Richard and I say, Richard, I forgive you. <laughs> Will, as he's wiping his face clean, might think, Weston, that's really nice of you, but forgiveness is not really yours to grant in this moment. Well, Jesus can't rightfully declare that this woman's sins are forgiven unless all of her sins are actually against him. And as God in the flesh, that is exactly the case. All of the ways that we live for ourselves are an offense to Jesus. All the ways that we act like the kings and queens of our own lives are acts of treason against the true king. And as the offended party, Jesus can offer pardon. And all we have to do to receive it is to believe that Jesus can actually give it to us. Look at what he says in the final verse to this woman. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And we actually have more reason than this woman to believe that Jesus is able to forgive us of all of our sins because now we know how he secured our forgiveness. Now we know that he gave up his life on the cross to receive the due penalty for all of our sins. He received God's just judgment for our sins so that we might receive God's grace. And so if you are feeling weighed down this morning by guilt or shame, faith in Jesus can give you peace of conscience because Jesus gives us peace with God. Third, let's discuss the relevance of this story for, for you Christians here this morning who are just trying to faithfully follow Jesus. Right? You know that we are to grow in our love for the Lord. We're supposed to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But how does that actually happen? How does our love for Jesus grow? Well, this passage tells us that the way that we grow in our love for Jesus is by growing in our understanding of how much we've been forgiven. This means that growth in the Christian life requires that we have a growing awareness of our sin. And that might seem a little counterintuitive. We might assume that as we grow as Christians, we will see ourselves becoming better and better people. But let's think this through. If we see ourselves as better and better people, then we will feel our need for Jesus' grace less and less. And according to Jesus' math, that means that we will love him less and less. But on the other hand, we see our sin more and more, then we will feel our need for his grace more and more, and thus 
we will love him more and more. But even if that makes sense to you, becoming aware of our sin is still uncomfortable. (laughs) It makes us feel yucky inside. (laughs) And so most of us do what we can to avoid that. We've got all sorts of ways that we can avoid dealing with our guilt. We can distract ourselves with work or hobbies or endless media. (laughs) Like recently, my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter had a little bit of a toddler meltdown, and, you know, I didn't handle it the best. And so once she was calm and contained, I, I flopped down on the couch, and I pulled out my phone, and I just started to scroll I didn't want to deal with my recent failure as a father, and my phone provided endless distraction from that. Or if not distraction, we can, we can numb ourselves with food or drink or online shopping, or we can ignore people or even cut off people who say things to us that we don't want to hear. But whenever we avoid an awareness of our sin, we are actually avoiding opportunities to grow in our love for Jesus. And so if you're a Christian who has faithfully showed up to church this morning, but you're feeling a little meh about Jesus, maybe what you need is some self-examination. And here are just a, a few suggestions for you to try. When you sit down to read the Bible, try not to quickly check it off your list and move on to the next thing. No, linger over it meditate on it. See yourself reflected in it. As you read scripture, let it read you. Or when you stop to pray, it's really easy to simply present our requests to God. We're invited to do that, and, you know, frankly, that's the thing that's on the top of our minds. But what what if you also gave yourself some space to confess your sins to God? And not just the sins that are obvious and external, but the sins that reside deep in your heart. And if you're not sure where to start with that, you can actually pray that God would reveal your sin to you. And in a similar vein, you could also invite a friend to ask some tough questions or to speak some hard truths. And whenever the Spirit does convict you of your sin, don't shy away from it. Embrace it. Now, embracing it doesn't mean wallowing in it. No, God never wants us to wallow in our guilt. He wants us to revel in his grace. And so whenever you look your sin square in the face, also look to Jesus. The old Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, said, for every one look you take at your sin, take 10 looks at Christ." And look at Christ on the cross. Because on the cross, we see how much we need forgiveness. But on the cross, we also see how amazing is his grace. Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins. But Jesus was glad to die on the cross for our sins. When we look to Jesus on the cross, we see that we have been forgiven much. And so we will come to love Jesus much as well. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, 
you are always at work through your word, through your spirit, through your people, revealing to us both our sin and your grace. And I pray that you would open our eyes to see both of those things. Lord, would we not shy away from our sin because in doing so, we are shying away from your grace. But Lord, help us to see that we have been forgiven much so that we might love your son, Jesus, much as well. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.